Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. Matthew 13, 53 to 58. I'm just going to warn you, I am going to break every convention of public speaking uh, that has ever been taught to anyone. I have a cough drop in my mouth, and I have a bottle of water open, and I will drink from it regularly and may put a new cough drop in my mouth as I speak, so just bear with me. If you see something fly across that's not spit, it's a cough drop, so just, I'm going to try to make it. I'll probably cough a few times, but it'll be okay. Um, As I said earlier, the holidays uh, remind us, I think, of some wonderful things. Um, I think it reminds us that family is wonderful. We get an opportunity maybe to celebrate with family and to sit around and and eat lots of good food and uh, exchange presents at Christmas and uh, talk and catch up and all of those kinds of really good things. And so the holidays remind us of a lot of that. But the holidays also remind us, I think, at least if you're like me, holidays remind us that family is hard. (laughs) Family is very hard. Um, When you sit around a table uh, with wandering children, children that have wandered far from the faith, or perhaps your parents that reject the faith that you hold uh, once delivered to the saints, maybe it's spouses that don't share your faith. I mean, when we get close to Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ with a spouse that doesn't share your belief, is that's difficult. Um, perhaps even getting close to friends that you haven't seen in a long time that spurn the gospel that you're sharing with them and you have maybe a tenuous relationship at best and you're worried about how that relationship might eventually sever at your sharing of the gospel with them. Holidays are difficult and it, it does us well to remember that. But as we get into our passage this morning, Jesus is coming to his hometown He's coming to the place where he grew up, around people he knows. And I think what we're going to see in this passage is very brief as it is, are many parallels and lessons to our own families and our own experiences as we relay the gospel to those that don't believe. Look with me at our text, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53 and following. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the text that's in front of us, we ask and depend on your spirit to reveal to us the truth therein. Not only to just reveal to us the truth, but apply it to our own lives. We need your help, and we pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're coming to the end of the third section in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're entering into the fourth section, and we know that 
mainly because Matthew has a very concise way of concluding every section that he talks about. And he does it by saying, when Jesus had finished. He does that several times in the book, and it divides the book really nicely for us. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29. He said it there in 11, 1, and he says it here in 53. And so we know that he's moving to a new section. We were introduced to Jesus as he was introducing us to the kingdom of God in chapters 4 to 7, you'll remember. And then we saw him demonstrating the power of the kingdom in people's lives and how he had command and authority over it in chapters 8 to 10. We saw that. And then in 11 to 13, we were seeing people having varying responses to Jesus bringing the gospel of the kingdom. But now we're getting to see where these negative responses to the the kingdom of God and to the gospel that Jesus is preaching and the negative responses to Jesus himself are going to grow ever more hostile to the point where we get up to the very last section before our conclusion where Jesus goes to the cross. In verse 53, we're told that Jesus finishes speaking privately to his disciples about the parables and he moves on to his hometown in verse 54 where he begins to teach in the synagogue. Now we're told in Luke chapter 4 verse 16 that when Matthew says his hometown, he means Nazareth, not where he currently resides in Capernaum, where he makes his sort of base of operation. He is going back to his hometown, to the place where he grew up, to where all the people know him. Now, what you might expect as we get into this section where the hostility towards Jesus is going to grow, that that hostility would happen in and around Jerusalem as he gets prepared to take on the cross and die for the sins of the world. But that's not the case at all. The resistance happens first in his hometown, not in Jerusalem, but with the people that know him and his family best. It would have been very normal. In fact, in Luke 4.16, Luke tells us that it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Luke mentions uh, uh, that on this day, he was even asked in his home synagogue to read from the scroll of Isaiah. That's what he's asked to do when he gets into the synagogue. It was very common for a traveling teacher to come from out of town and address all the congregants there if they were a, a preacher or a teacher. And certainly Jesus would qualify for that. And this definitely carried through into the New Testament. We see this as a warning in John's letters. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are mostly concerning about people that you invite into your assembly and how you uh, gauge them, whether they're false teachers or not. And, and so this, this happens. People are traveling around and they're speaking. We see a number of times in Paul's missionary journeys where he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. And some people have hostility towards, towards them. But what would be most common is that a person would come in, would teach, and then they would be shown hospitality by all those in attendance. Now you can envision a scenario. It's not hard to imagine. Where Jesus comes back to his hometown. He walks into a very familiar synagogue that he's been into a number of times. Where him and his brothers and his sisters and his mother and father all attended. And as he walks in, they say, oh, hey, we know you. 
You're, you're the brother of, of these ladies. We know you. You're, you're the brother of Judas and James and all, and all them. We know you. You're, you're Joseph's boy. You're, you're Mary's boy. And so he's asked to participate in the service by reading from the scroll of Isaiah. However, the reaction of the crowd and the events that surround his time in the synagogue tell us some very important things, even about our own interaction with unbelievers. And there's two observations that I want you to see in this text, in this passage. The first is that belief is not a matter of empirical evidence. Belief is not a matter of empirical evidence. In reading this passage, we should take a moment to just notice that the crowd rightly understands Jesus' teaching. Think about that for a second. They rightly understand Jesus' teaching, and they even have seen, or at least they've heard about, many of his mighty works or his miracles. They're rightly interpreting them as miracles or mighty works. Notice that Matthew tells us there that they were astonished, and they asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? We might be tempted to think otherwise when we read the accounts in the Gospels, don't we sometimes think that maybe they explained the miracles away? That maybe they, they watched the miracles happen, but then they, they were like, oh, that guy? Well, I mean, he might have been a plant. You know, like a Benny Hinn crusade where he does all these like healings, but they're like plants in the, in the audience and things like that. He, he must not have really been born blind. That's the perception that they had. And certainly that does happen. We see this happen in the Gospel of John where a man is born blind and he's healed. And then there's this extensive scene where the Pharisees are questioning whether this man was really born blind. They bring his parents in and all of that kind of thing. But mostly, this wasn't the case. Mostly, that, that wasn't the case. And it certainly wasn't the case here. They literally saw the miracles. And they believed the miracles. They, they've at least heard about the miracles before. They're about to see some more miracles, but they, they've at least heard about the miracles before, and they attribute them here to mighty works. They affirm, yes, they were mighty works. They heard the teaching, and they were astonished at its wisdom. They couldn't refute it. It was wise. Yet, none of these reactions created a believer in Jesus Christ. None of these reactions created a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 55, they start pointing to the people uh, in Jesus' family as evidence that they should discredit him. Is not this the carpenter's son? He's just a carpenter. He's a carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary? The implication here uh, being that we, we know that he was raised by a carpenter and a plain, ordinary woman, whom we also know. Now, it's likely that Joseph was well-known in that city. In fact, it's also likely that Jesus, at least in the early part of his life, in his teenage years and in his early 20s, followed after Joseph's trade and was a craftsman there in that town, in Nazareth. In Mark, the crowd also identifies Jesus. They, they add to that, is this not the carpenter? Identified Jesus as the carpenter. So Jesus probably had a hand in Joseph's business there in Nazareth and in his younger years. But what is the likelihood that an ordinary carpenter 
raises an extraordinary teacher and miracle worker and healer like Jesus is claiming to be. What are the odds of that? The other part of this is that we know his brothers and his sisters. We know James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. They're mentioned there in, by name in verse 55. They at least grew up in the town if they don't still live there to this day. And then what about his sisters? They're not mentioned by name there, but they're mentioned in verse 56. They seem to still live in the town at the very least. They even asked the question after naming all the siblings, where did this man get all these things? They name his family as if to say, they're not special. What would make us think Jesus is? It's similar to what we do today when you've got a quarterback that's a star athlete and they point to his parents in the stands and they marvel at the fact that, hey, that guy's just an ordinary engineer. How did he produce this quarterback? Right? We tend to think that way, uh, that brilliance begets brilliance, but also mediocrity begets mediocrity. If you're mediocre, then all your kids are going to be mediocre as well. If all of his siblings were among us and his dad was just a carpenter, then he can't surely be anything special. And it says they took offense at him. These are people that know his family. They know him very well, presumably. They saw him grow up when he was a boy. His family has most likely had dinner with lots of these people in the town. The towns are very, very small. Borrowed a cup of sugar from that guy. They know him very well. For Jesus, this should be a respite. The hometown boy has grown up into a great teacher and miracle worker, and dare I say, in the region at least, is famous. And is revealing the salvation of God to the Jewish people. But instead of receiving a homecoming, Jesus is rejected. Now, Jesus is without sin. And in fact, they don't point to his history. They don't look back at his upbringing. And they don't say, oh, that, that's the kid that stole those potatoes and was quite the hellion when he was a little, little boy. I remember him. Good thing he grew up and made something out of himself. They don't say that. They don't point to his upbringing. In fact, all his actions that they point to are a certainty and assurance that he is the Messiah. They identify them as mighty works and wisdom, but they still discredit him. Now, it's important that we be equipped with the right understanding of the gospel message. Because the true gospel testifies to our own sinfulness. And you must have a proper understanding of your own sinfulness because the people that know you the best will discredit you the most because they know you. Now, unlike Jesus, who was without sin, they know your past. They know my past. They know the scoundrels that we still are and that we were. And what we have to understand is that, that conversion to a life of faith in Jesus Christ does not mean that you are perfect. 
It does not mean that you have it all together and that you have everything figured out. It means precisely the opposite. You have realized your imperfection is more than just imperfection. It's sin against the holy God and that you're finite and limited in knowledge. Now, Jesus has no sin and yet they reject him because they know him. What do you think they'll do to you when they've been personally offended by your sin? You whom they know all too well. Well, you just think you're so good, don't you? The answer is no. It's actually the opposite. I realized that I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Because the actual gospel message should be a great comfort to you. Because only in the gospel can you own your own sin in front of your family. Only in the confidence that the gospel brings can I stand before my brothers and my sisters and my friends and my family members and own my own sin in front of them. It's only by the confidence that I have in the gospel that I can do that. Because only with the true gospel message can you acknowledge, can you confess, can you repent of all your sin and then turn and ask them, now what do you do with your sin? I take mine to Jesus who has forgiven me and who welcomes me in. I take mine to Christ who is the Lord and judge of all creation. But what do you do with yours? What do you do with your sin? See, sometimes offending someone is what needs to happen. Amen. That's hard. But sometimes it needs to happen. Now, we never want to make the offense some sinful behavior whether it be rudeness or maybe it's that kind of in-your-face browbeating of the gospel and that kind of thing. We, we don't want to do anything like that. Not always. However, sometimes we are far more conscious of the feelings of others than we need to be, particularly when it's a matter of heaven or hell. In Jesus' case, their offense is over the fact that this person that we've known since he was a boy is telling us the good news of the kingdom. This boy is the one telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what are they offended by? It appears that they're offended by him, not just his message. In Jesus' case, with his hometown, familiarity breeds contempt. They don't list sins that he's done because he has none. They don't mention grievances that they have against him because they have none. And yet they still reject the message that, he, that he's bringing. And they use him as an excuse to reject that message. The plain and simple fact of the matter is that if someone is bent on rejecting the gospel, they'll use any excuse possible to do so. They will discredit you even if you're sinless, which you're not. But they will. We put this lie in our minds. 
as we're sitting across the table from our friends or family members as we're sharing the gospel with them or we're confronting them over something and we, we think about it and we, we just sense that they're just not getting it. They're not hearing us. And we think to ourselves, man, if only, if only Jesus would come down right now and just make a special appearance and he would just, there would be like a dead guy over here and he would just snap his fingers and the dead guy would just kind of wake up and raise up from the dead, or if there'd just be a blind guy and he would just he would just heal him and open his eyes, then my family member or my friend or whoever it is across the table from me, my son or my daughter, would believe. But actually, what the gospel writers are telling you is that this happened in the first century. That this was exactly the case in the first century. I'm sure it's not even beyond the pale that somebody went to Jesus and was like, if you would just come over here and do that miracle in front of this guy, he would believe. The gospel writers are telling you this was exactly the case in the first century. Jesus came in amongst the people. He did miracles. They acknowledged that, in fact, they were mighty works and that his teaching was wisdom. And they still did not believe. In John 6... There are thousands of people that are there as Jesus multiplies bread from five loaves and two fish. Thousands. There's 5,000 men, but there's families there. There's 15, 20, 25, maybe 30,000 people that are there that are fed by the multiplication of loaves and fish. And at the end of that chapter, there are 12. Everyone leaves. And one of the twelve is a devil. Belief in Christ is not a matter of empirical evidence. Second, only the Holy Spirit can change an unbelieving heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change an unbelieving heart. Matthew tells us Jesus didn't do many mighty works there. He says Jesus didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, if you read the same account in Mark, Mark 6, 5, Mark makes it a little stronger. He says he could do no mighty works there. Now, did not do and could not do is a little different. See, did not seems to indicate that he chose not to. But could not seems to mean that he was somehow restricted from doing mighty works there because of their unbelief. The prosperity gospel preachers like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn, who claim to have this ministry of healing, will tell you that if the healing doesn't work, well, it's because you didn't believe. There's something wrong with you. I mean, don't you know, after all, even Jesus couldn't heal the person if they didn't believe. I mean, look at Mark 6, 5, right there. He's prohibited. However, I think that's a poor reading of Mark and Matthew, for that matter. Indeed, Jesus was restricted, but not by the faith of the people receiving the signs. I mean, he's able to multiply bread twice, walk on water, and not forget, raise the dead. And none of that depends on the faith of the ones receiving the miracle. Further, to think of the God who spoke the universe into existence 
somehow being hindered by mankind would make a wreck of so many passages in Scripture, it would be clueless of us to even assume that the Bible is trustworthy if you were to believe that. Nebuchadnezzar's confession about God in Daniel 4.35 is true. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Paul's words in Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does he do? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Yeah, but what does it mean in Greek? It means, ready for it? He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Or God's own words about himself and the righteousness that he creates in man in Isaiah 45, 12 to 13. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Literally every, I mean, we could go on. I could read forever. Literally every page of scripture is littered with the evidence that the so-called God of the prosperity gospel preachers that is somehow made impotent by man's faith is a false God. I don't know who they're preaching about, but it's not the God of the Bible. The God they're thinking about is much more like Santa Claus who needs your belief in order to get his sleigh to fly. The clausometer is a little bit low. The faith is low. Well, there's not going to be a Christmas this year if the clausometer doesn't creep up. There's not going to be a healing for you. I mean, it's absolutely preposterous the God they're peddling for hundreds of millions of dollars and people are following it and they're walking straight into hell and they're leading them there. So then, how do we understand what's being communicated here about Jesus' lack of miracles in connection with their lack of faith? Well, Jesus is restricted, but not by their faith. He's restricted by the Father. Jesus only ever did what the Father wanted him to do. Anytime you see him doing something or refraining from doing something, you can guarantee that is the Father's will. He's restricted from the Father, not restricted by man. He could not heal because that wasn't the ministry the Father had given to him. His ministry was not a circus act. He was mainly teaching and preaching, and the miracles were an affirmation of his divinity, sure, but there are several times, even within the Gospel of Matthew, that we get evidence of him shutting down his miracles in front of people as condemnation over their unbelief. The Pharisees, in the last chapter, asked for a sign, and he tells them no. He's just done a bunch of signs. Is he tired? No, he's not tired. Why does he tell them no? Is it because he couldn't? Well, you see, Pharisees, I could. But if you could just muster up a little faith, if you could just get a Jesus chant going, Jesus, Jesus, you could just get something in you a little bit, just a little bit to make the clausometer go up, and then maybe I could heal somebody. 
here. I'd really appreciate it. That's ludicrous. No, because for the unbelieving, one miracle will suffice. For the unbelieving, one miracle will suffice. It will suffice for belief or condemnation, and that is the resurrection. That is the only miracle they need. He says, you'll get your miracle. I'm going to rise from the dead. By that one miracle, not any other, you will be condemned for your unbelief. For the, un, for the believing, see, the miracles are icing on the cake. The woman at the well didn't need a miracle to believe. Simply just some insight into her life would suffice. She didn't need a miracle. The disciples are there and they're responding. They came at his calling and they're responding to his teaching. The people that believe might be affirmed by the miracles, but they're not converted. They're converted by the work of the Spirit. So both Mark and Matthew are right in what they say about Jesus' ministry. He would not and he could not because he wasn't a circus performer. His ministry of miracles were affirming to the believing and condemning the unbelieving. But then how do we respond to unbelief? I'm not a miracle worker. How do I respond to unbelief? There is an unmistakable and somewhat shocking turn of events in this passage. The hometown of Jesus is the one to reject him. And this leads Jesus to utter that all too well-known phrase, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. Remember, Jesus' own family shows up just a chapter before and they're wishing to speak to him. We don't know for sure, but the way it's presented in all the Gospels is that they want to talk some sense into him. Can you just get Jesus out here? You're being a little crazy. You're giving us a bad name. This is something that our brothers and sisters that have come from a Muslim background and often a Chinese background that come to faith in Christ know all too well. The conversion to Christ, to being Christ followers for many around the world means the absolute rejection of family and hometown. That is what is at stake when they come to Christ. It is no small feat when they come to Christ because it means simultaneously they are rejecting everything their father taught them. The cost for following Christ cannot be overestimated. In America's past, if you were a businessman or you were a politician or you're a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, it was often to your advantage to be a member of a church. For one, there's the networking that goes on within the church, for sure. But then there's also the fact that if I'm going into business with you, and I'm going to trust my money to you, and I'm going to trust a lot of different things to you, or maybe my house or whatever to you, then I want to know and want to have the peace of mind that you're a church-going man. You're a God-fearing person. But that's quickly fading in our society. Up north, it's gone completely, and down here, it's diminishing very quickly. And we'll see churches in the foreseeable future shrinking in buildings they can't support. 
Not because the gospel is any less effective or because the gospel isn't being preached or because even the ministry style is, is fading with the community. It's not because of any of those things, but because following Christ is no longer giving people the political capital that it once did, but it's actually costing them political capital. You go to church, are you a weak-minded person? Is that who I'm leaving my money with? Is that who I'm trusting my house to? An idiot? Is that who I'm allowing to have this kind of influence in my life? The disciples have been told that they are going to face certain persecution. And Jesus has told them that he's sending them out as sheep amid wolves. He's told them, blessed are the persecuted. They know all too well from what they've seen and the things that they've been told that these things are going to happen. But there's an encouragement here for them. There's an encouragement here for you and for me as we look to the future of Christianity, as we look inside of our own families, as we look to how the gospel is made prevalent again in this country, as we wrestle with the question, what do I do if someone doesn't believe? The encouragement is that Jesus faced all of this rejection himself and more so. There is no persecution. There is no conversation with a hard-hearted atheist. There is no conversation with a family member that refuses to believe that wasn't faced by Christ himself. Indeed, he took his cross to the hill called Golgotha, where spikes were driven, driven through his hands and his feet, and his clothes were stripped off of him, and he was lifted up, and he was mocked, and he was spat upon to face the wrath of God that you and I deserve. But what Jesus is going to show the disciples by going through persecution and by ultimately dying on the cross is that they might be able to kill the body. It's only temporary. There is a resurrection from the dead to come. And they cannot touch the soul. Listen, if when you and I die, that's it. We're just worm food. Do not endure persecution. If that's what happens in the end, is that we just rot in the ground and that's the end of all things, then you would be an idiot to face persecution. You should run while you still have a chance. Do everything you can to spare your own life. If, on the other hand, there is life on the other side of death, and that life is eternal, then you would be a fool to try to save your life now at the expense of eternal life in the future. An absolute fool. Yes. Jesus is demonstrating that by walking into his hometown and facing rejection by his own family, that there is life to come but it's not easy. Perhaps the hardest thing that you can do in your faith is face rejection from your family. 
They're the ones that are supposed to love you the most. They're the ones that you love the most. There is no greater earthly rejection than from your family. If you have family members that are not Christians and they avoid talking to you, especially about these kinds of matters, there's a rift between you and them around the Thanksgiving table. Or maybe there's no Thanksgiving at all because they simply will not come around because of your beliefs. That's a real kind of suffering. But brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is the only one that can change the heart of a person from unbelieving to believing, if the Holy Spirit is the only one that can open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf, then hit your knees and pray for them and do not stop praying. And don't be afraid to tell them the good news of the gospel and trust the maker of heaven and earth that he knows best. Because while the earthly people that know us best might reject us. If you're a follower of Christ, then the Lord of all creation who made you and truly knows you best has accepted you. He has accepted you. So all of our action must be built on that foundation I am accepted in the family of God and nothing else matters. There's two things I want you to consider as you approach the holidays in light of this text. First, rejection comes with the territory. Comes with the territory. Be ready to lose friends when you share the gospel with them, when you really make a conscious effort to make conversations with your friends and family members, gospel conversations, and you really try to take those conversations and move them into, yes, but what do you do with your sin? You're going to see that you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose family members, and you need to be ready. When you call them out on sin, when they're in sin, but they claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, and you call them out on sin, you need to be ready. Be ready to be rejected by even the closest people to you, even by your own parents, even by your own kids. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, just a few chapters ago. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he said that because the confrontation over the gospel is a real one and it's difficult. And because of it, many people pull back second thing he does the convicting he does the convicting you don't have to pound the drum every chance you get you don't have to take advantage of every scenario and play all of those out and just continue to browbeat them you don't have to Jesus actually moves on from his hometown And so can you. Take opportunities as they come 
but you don't have to force anything. And remember, God put you in that situation, not someone else. He put you there with your knowledge or lack thereof. He put you in that situation. Be faithful. It's not by your sound logic or your arguments that you're going to bring someone to faith. We've seen that already. Use what you have and be faithful. You don't need someone else to share the gospel with them. You don't have to start the gospel conversation and then lump your pastor in or lump your whoever in that knows more than you and think, well, then surely your better arguments will convince them because mine seem to not be doing the trick. He put you in that scenario. Just be faithful in what he's given to you. And remember, the Lord turns hearts. The Lord opens eyes. Only pray that you might be faithful. That's all any of us can pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, we know, that approaching those that know us best can be daunting, can be difficult, can be challenging and hard. So Lord, I just pray for a holy confidence. Not a pride, but a holy confidence. of Knowing that you're in control. That we can simply be loving and kind. We can share the gospel in a loving and kind way. And we can leave the results and anything that comes of it to you. We know you are the sower of seed. We know you are the one that waters. We know you are the one that causes the growth. So we just pray that we might be found faithful. Or please make us faithful. Let me be found faithful. As we think of all the things that we've got to do as we think of all the busyness that can fill our lives, as we think of all the things that are there that provide distractions to us, Lord, I pray that we would be able to strip those away and just be found faithful to remember what you've actually called us to, what you've called us to prioritize, what you've called us to love. May our values be your values, and may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name.